This episode of The Moment is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that yeah. no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> Hey, this is a moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This this guest, I knew before he had the name that he currently has. I mean, he had this name, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, I remember when you would call me when I, we were both in music and you were Jesse James. That's right. Which was your rap handle, wasn't it? Your, was that your <laughs> going, first rap handle? You're going back far. Yes, yes. But since then, uh, Jesse has taken the rap game really, really far and um, is one of the owners of the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, was one of the founders, or I guess not the founders, but really early in Zico Coconut Water and yep. realized what that market and world could be very very early. He's uh, an ultra-endurance athlete and has just written a book called Living with a Seal, 31 Days Training with the Toughest Man on the Planet. Man, I, I read this book in two hours flat. <laughs> you, it's a really thrilling read. Thank you. Thanks. And, um, you know, the book is it, it ends up being sort of like a... a a great journal of this. Why don't you explain what you did? Well, I met, I was at a 24-hour ultramarathon in San Diego, and um, the premise of the race is you run as many miles as you can in 24 hours. I did it as part of a six-person relay team, but the guy sitting to my left did it alone. And the, the, race, the race was self-supported. I mean, you have to bring all your own supplies and I was just coming off the sale of Marquee Jet, so I think I overdid it. I had a tent. Oh, yeah, the other company you founded along with uh, Kenny Dichter, uh, Marquee yeah. Jet, which was the first uh, partial, sh- like a, where you could get 25 hours of a private jet and then earn your way into eventually, you know, if you wanted to have a piece of a, right. a jet. Right, So we had just sold it to uh, Berkshire Hathaway NetJets. So at this race where people were bringing their own supplies, I had masseuses, and I went a little nuts on it. And anyway, the guy, this guy, this fellow sitting to my left, literally was in a folding chair with a bottle of water and a bag of crackers for the whole race. And at about mile 70, he had broken, he was about 260 pounds, which is huge for an ultra, if you're doing an ultra marathon, it's a lot of pounding. Because of the weight, his weight, he broke every bone in both of his feet and he had kidney failure and finished the race. Sick. Well, he breaks his feet in your book too. Yeah, uh, twice, About yeah. three quarters of the way through the book, he breaks it both was a common. Feet. It was a common theme. And um, just kind of casually tells you that, and it doesn't really slow him down. Zero impact. Well, this is the amazing thing, because in the book, so you invite this guy, because I want to I cut to it. Yeah. The book, I, I just want to say, is really worth reading for people, because I, I know you've gone on other shows, and you've kind of talked about the how of this, what it was like lived through, but I'm much more interested in why. Right. So I saw this guy suffer and finish this race, and I'm like, what makes a guy like this tick? 
and I literally just, I Googled him. He had a fascinating story. I cold called him, flew out, and I sat with him for about 10 minutes. And 10 minutes into just talking to him, I realized that my life would be so much better if a little bit of his grit, determination, whatever it was that made him tick, rubbed off on me. So I asked him to move in with my family and I, and you know he, uh, he said yes, and then I called my wife and said, we got a, honey, we got a guest. And, um, and that started a 31-day journey where he moved into our house. Yeah, I mean, you calling your wife isn't like a normal person just calling their wife or their spouse because your wife is a billionaire entrepreneur who started Spanx. Right. And you guys have a complicated and big life by necessity. You're both wildly successful entrepreneurs. Um, do you often act this sort of impetuously? <laughs> You know, things that phase Sarah or think, things that phase me probably don't phase other people. I mean, I think I think I also caught her at a little bit, one of her Lucille Ball moments. You know, I timed it right. Yeah, in the book, you say she's half Lucille Ball, half Einstein. But uh, I think she's got to have a lot of Einstein in her. I've spent she a little does. bit of time with her. I don't see the Lucille Ball so much. She does. She, you know, she was super supportive. And honestly, I think she, when I gave her the backstory of this guy, she was actually excited. I think that she's always trying to be more inspired and learn and get more, even though she's so driven, she's always trying to get better. And I think that there was a little part of her that was looking forward to just learning as well. It was a completely new, out of the box, different idea. And she welcomed it. And explain what his one condition was. So his one condition to move in with me was I had to do everything that he said, no matter what, or else he was leaving. And he said the first time you said no, he he would be out 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 of the door. And you believed him that he would leave. Yes, and he didn't have a lot of stuff to pack. He brought one little knapsack worth of probably two T-shirts and a toothbrush. So for him to leave would have taken about three minutes. And then the book is this really great, funny ride through the nighttime runs that you guys take and um, almost getting hypothermia by jumping into a lake. And you do start to understand what matters to him and why it matters to him. But you spend very little time, only like three pages towards the end, really talking about your own why. Right. And I'm wondering then what you thought your real reason was and what you've come to see. Because, you know, it's, it's one thing for people who, who haven't achieved your level of success and comfort. And I'm wondering if part of it, because in thinking about it, I felt like, because you only mentioned death quickly. You know, you go, oh, I only have, yeah. maybe have 40 more years, right? But I, I wonder if there's this fear of uh, complacency or why, this, the, why the idea of complacency is so scary to you. Well, I was in a routine. Like so many of us, we all live our life. A lot of us, you know, many times, myself included, we live on autopilot. You know, we get up, have our coffee, go to work, come home, repeat every day. And I just, I just wanted to get, I wasn't getting better. And what he taught me is I had so much more in my reserve tank that I could operate so much better. It's true. And, and But you were already, I mean, the, I think, uh, I remember this one night that you and I had dinner in New York like 10 years ago, and, and you had just run the marathon wearing a, like a <laughs> coconut water costume. Yeah. The New York Marathon. Yeah. And like a lark. Yeah. I mean, you were already an ultra-endurance athlete yourself. Yes. And already could occupy your day with as much interesting stuff. Yeah. Right? You didn't have to be bored if you didn't want to. Right. So, like, what's underneath it? What is the, dri- what is the driver for you to have to keep pushing it? Honestly, just to get better and to learn more about myself. And, you know, he had this theme of there's no finish lines. And that's sort of how I live my life. When I finish something, like the marathon where I ran in a literally like a human Tetra Pack, I would like look like a can of coconut water and people, yeah. you know. But once that's done, it's done. And it's like, what's the next challenge? What else can I learn? I mean, I'm 47 years old. My, the time is, you know, time shrinks. 
Money comes and goes, but time is something we have no control over. And I want to get as much in. I want to build as much of my life resume as I can. And I felt like, you know, a guy like this, who's just so fascinating, and, and you know, he set the Guinness Book of World's Records for most pull-ups. He did 4,030 pull-ups in 17 hours. And, but to get there, he had to do 60, he did 67,000 pull-ups, pull-ups, while he was practicing. Okay, but that's about him, not no, about no, no, you. No, but, it's a, but, but, what he, but what it was, Brian, yes. was the preparation. And I was starting to lax off a little bit in my preparation, you know? You and mean you felt yourself not... I was drifting onto autopilot. And you felt like it would bleed into all areas, like... We Every worried it was going to bleed into other areas of your life. Every bucket. I was just getting like, I was getting complacent. I was getting a routine. I just really was losing my mojo. And so many of us, that happens to so many of us, not just midlife crisis. And the, right. You just, you just get into a space where it's hard to get out of your comfort zone because you're comfortable. And I wanted to get really uncomfortable to get better. And that's really the, the truth. And that's what I signed up for. And he took it to, you know, he took it to another level, but that is what I signed up for. Yeah, and this was, when did you guys do this, 2010 is when you did the running? You did the running in 2010. Yep. That was when you met him. Yep. And then when did he come to He moved in shortly after. So he he, he lived with me in December of of 2010. And it it took a while for the book to come to fruition. But um, the experience is here we are years later, and so much of it has stuck with me. Well, it's really interesting because I flashed on this memory. And it's a story that I would tell about my own maturity I could tell the story two different ways. One is um, we, you and I were on a trip with about 50 people, what, two years ago after this? Yep. About two years ago on an island somewhere. Yep. And everyone was out on the beach, uh, and there was water skiing. <laughs> people were water skiing, because here's the thing, right? And I hadn't water skied in a long time. <laughs> yeah, you see where I'm going. Well, I hadn't water skied in a long time, but when I was a kid, I loved to do it. And I'm, oh, you know, you're in great shape. I'm, I remember you and I were... Talking about Tony Robbins, we both like him at, at the thing, but I think we've used him for different things. We've used the work because, you know, I'm not in g- great shape. You are. And I go and I water ski and I'm, I'm going around and everyone on the beach could watch you water ski. And I'm, yes. I'm skiing. And so when everyone's watching, it kind of makes you want to do more. And I'm going outside the wake and I'm solemning. And I realize, like, my arms are starting to really hurt <laughs> and my back's hurting. But really, my arms are fucking hurting because I haven't done this in 20 years. Right. And then all of a sudden I had this thought. I'm a grown man. I can just let go. Right. I don't have to prove anything to anybody anymore. Right. I don't have to. I don't care what I look like water skiing. I don't want to like be uh, hobbling around here for the next few days. Right. And I let go and I sank down and I came to shore and I was like, ah, I feel so good. Right. What happened to you water skiing there? Because, <laughs> well, I saw you doing it. I'm like, that looks like a lot of fun. So I said, you know what? And I was reading a book, enjoying myself. I'm going to go kneeboarding. Yeah. I'm going to get in the middle of the ocean with everybody watching me. And I'm going to kneeboard. So I got on the kneeboard, and the guy driving the boat, I think he wasn't converting metric to miles per hour or something. He was flying. Yeah. And I attempted to do a 360, which I've done many times before. And as I was spinning around and holding the rope with one hand in my, from behind me, he accelerated. And I tried to hold on and yanked my bicep out of my arm. Yeah, ripped, ripped <laughs> your ripped. arm out of your arm, essentially. Right. So now everyone on the shore is looking at me. It's like an emergency rescue, and there's no hospital. There's no anything. So the guy, I come back to shore. The guy looks at my bicep, which is basically— It had rolled up oh, to yeah. the— It's basically in my shoulder. Yeah. He says, no problem. No problem, man. And he grabs a bed sheet, rips it with his teeth in half, and ties me up in a—like a, from mash. And I remember we had dinner that—like, we all had dinner that night. You didn't leave. 
where was I going to go? Right. It would have taken me four days to get, no, yeah, know. there's nowhere to go. But you came and you were like kind of smiling through it. I'm one, and, and I'm, you know. Felt like such a jackass. Oh, you did? Oh, you know, guys, well, it was a wedding and guys were hugging and they're like, you don't want to be, the, you don't want to take attention away from what's yeah, going but on. But didn't you feel like you, um, you were kind of living like the, living like a seal that you just like did the thing? Yes. Yes. And tough because I was looking at you, we were kind of laughing through it and I'm, I mean, did it change the way that you... The laughing was tequila. Right. <laughs> the sure. laughing was tequila. Well, I'm sure when you woke up the next day, it was really oh. terrible. But did it change the way you, you think about pain or you think about difficulty? Or was this all, were you always good at it? I was. You know, when I was a kid, this is crazy. It's in the book. But my mom, she didn't think that Novocaine was tried and tested. And when I would go to get cavities filled, I would get cavities with no Novocaine. So at a very young age... Not that I have the crazy threshold for pain, but I mean, I, yeah, that's the I, worst story. It's in the. I almost put the book down and stopped when I got. Yeah, there. so I got drilled with no novocaine. So I've been able to deal with it pretty well. And you know, like I, I do run ultra marathons, and you learn a lot of mess, uh, messages. And when you run an ultra marathon, you have to deal with pain. You're running a hundred miles. I've ran a hundred miles, so I know what it's like to have swollen ankles, swollen knees, rippled up hips, and finish. This episode of the moment is brought to you by Braintree code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, we'll support that too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support means you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billion. Check it out for yourself. Visit braintreepayments.com slash moment. That's braintreepayments.com slash moment. What made you in the beginning decide to become an endurance athlete, to push yourself physically? Because it was you were doing that as you were building your businesses, or did yeah. you start doing that afterwards? It started gradually. I, mean, I, ran, I started out by running a 10K and then a marathon, and then being part of this relay team and an ultra marathon and seeing guys like the SEAL that live with me do it as an individual. But didn't you do a 100-mile race? I did it after, this, after the relay. So yeah, so I saw, I went to the relay race first and witnessed it. And when I saw that, wow, this is humanly possible, because I, I never thought, by the way, ultra running six, seven years ago, there were maybe 200, 300 people that had run 100 miles in this country. It was The sport was, now it's getting more popular as more people complete marathons and triathlons look for the next challenge. But back then, it was no one was doing it. So when I saw people complete 100 miles and, and the journey they went through to get there, just something sparked in me that said, you know what, I really want to see if I can do that. And I signed up for a race and, you know, I, and I did it. Were you always a good athlete? You know, I was a pretty good athlete. I, was pre- I wasn't a great athlete, but I was competitive. Did you and- play varsity sports in high school? Mm-hmm. I did. I Which played, ones? I played lacrosse, and I played basketball after high school. I played in the Maccabi games on the master's team. So I've, I've, I've been athletic into sports my whole life, but definitely not gifted. But you weren't on the team with Kenny Barra at N- no. Roslyn? No. I like to sit in the stands. And you like- <laughs> yeah, I like that. And watch. And watch him. But you weren't running that. You were doing some sports then, but it, was it a really important thing to you then? Yeah, that's one of my regrets that, I, that I, didn't, I didn't go out for the basketball team. I was actually not scared of getting cut. I was scared of making it. Yeah, what does that mean? You say that in the book, and what does that mean? Well, I just, you know, it, there was fear of failure. I was, scared. I was good enough to make the team for sure, probably start, 
but just I didn't want to miss a foul shot or or oh, really? perform badly or yeah, I mean that was that fear literally stopped me from trying out and and I regretted it so much. I've had dreams about it that since then I've literally said to myself I would never let fear of failure stop me from trying something. So I've done I've done races where I haven't finished. I've done races where I have finished. I've you know, have businesses that have worked and haven't worked. So I'm so interested in moments like this, the whole point of the, this, like why I do this show. I'm so interested in moments like this because so, so many people will kind of like live something like that or the thought will occur to them. How did you codify it for yourself? Like how do you go, you go from that moment I knew, like what does that look like to you inside when you make, because you've made a series of these decisions because, in your life. Like so do you write it down? Like what do you do to sort of um, memorialize it for yourself? Well, I just, I realized at that point that I would never have a second chance. I couldn't get those years back. I would never have an opportunity to do it again. And the feeling sucked. It just sucked. Right then you mean when you were 16? Right there, sitting in the stands and my friends were you know, saying to me, you should, what are you doing? Because you me, knew you could run with those guys. Right. And me saying you're 100% right. I'm playing in the, you know, the JCC League. This is ridiculous. And I just didn't want to have that feeling again. I, I, I just remember it very distinctly. So so the, that fear you learned was stronger, uh, was worse for you to, to, to feel like you've, you gave in without trying. Somehow became worse for you than actually doing it and failing. Without question. And rejection, you, you learn to get past rejection quick, because the book has a few different stories of you sort of like taking huge risks, whether it's fly, you know, buying a $10,000 table at something to go uh, yeah. be near your eventual wife or you know, conning your way into a rap impresario's office. Right. Does that sound is a strong word? Per- persuading. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. Um, it's true. You, uh, I could have said lying. No, no, no. I, you, no. Look, fear of rejection has been a theme. It's something that I've I've always been scared of, and it's something that you know sort of drives me now. Putting a flag in the ground, saying I'm not scared to try that or do that. And this is an example. You know, I had this guy move in. I didn't know him. He was basically a stranger. But you're, I, I imagine, you're a good judge of people. Like, uh, you know. No one becomes as successful as, as you are and you and Sarah are together yeah. without being able to thin slice basically somebody pretty quickly. But there were times when I would say to myself, he's pushing me a little too hard. Like, I wasn't scared of, like, him moving into our house. I felt very safe. I left the doors unlocked, basically invited. I always wanted to see what would happen if there was a confrontation yeah. in our house. But he would push me so hard that at times I would question, like, you know, one time he took a boulder and cracked open a frozen lake in Connecticut, where kids were playing hockey. And in fact, that was after you guys uh, almost got hypothermia from being in the lake. Yes. And uh, it's one of my favorite moments in the book is your your wife looks at him and says, what's the medical benefit of this? Because you would hurt yourself. And he was like, here, we're going to go in the lake. And he goes, none. This motherfucker asked for it. Right. What was it about this level of punishment that you, that you want or needed to prod you to the next level? Because all of us are, I, I think most of us feel like we don't want to get actually that close to the, to the flame because we're scared. Like what you said, if yeah. pushing you too far, what was it that you knew like you needed to? I needed to change my set points. So my bar was set at a certain point and that's how I was operating. And it was a high, it was the How is it affecting your rest of your, like, so that being set there, you said, you said you were in your routine. Did you feel it made you like not as good a husband and father and coworker? Or was it all about how you just felt not as alive as you wanted to. It felt, I felt not as alive. I felt like the, the harder, he had such a appreciation for difficulty and the harder the challenges, the more alive I felt as we did this stuff. And it became so addicting. So he had a saying that if you think you're done, first of all, his rule was if it doesn't suck, we don't do it. 
So every day we had to do something that just sucked, jumping in the lake, whatever it was. But also he had a big sealism, and he would say, if, if your brain tells you you're done, you're really only 40% done. Yeah, I love that. And, and that's where I was at in my life. I, I, had so, I had that extra 60%, and I knew it. I didn't know where or what, but I knew that in all the buckets, work buckets, training, obviously, my home family bucket, it just all of it. Could- and when you say you knew, now here's what's interesting. I, I, you showed me. You had made like a pie chart. Yes. Uh, oh, you're oh, right. You forgot no, to I forgot. No, I don't know. I live by that. But you had made. I haven't just, shared that with a lot of people. But yeah. You showed me this pie chart because you know I'm I'm uh, friendly with Tony. I think is why you showed it to me. Or yep. at the time, you know, and you. The point is, you were rating your not. You know, Tony does an exercise like this at his event at uh, Date with Destiny. But you were you were rating sort of like each part of your life and where you thought it was, and then you were dividing how you were going to spend your time. Right. But you don't have to give the specifics. I understand, but. Can you talk about what the value of that is for you, of doing something like that? Well, it was a great exercise for me. I literally just said, okay, there's 24 hours in a day. How do I, how do I, how do I spend them now, and how do I really want to spend yeah, them? Yeah, this is fast. How did you do that? How did you go about figuring that out? I started with sleep, and I said I sleep for seven hours, so I have 17 hours left in the day. And I knew that I needed three hours a day for me. You have to put yourself first. Otherwise, it sounds a little selfish, but you really have to put yourself first. And I feel by putting yourself first, your other buckets in your life get better. So I assigned three hours a day for me that I could do whatever I want. What does me mean? What did that mean? Me could be I want to take a sauna. I want to take go for a walk. It could be returning emails or reading a book. It could just be sitting and watching the TV, but it's Jesse time. And then I had a certain amount of time allocated for my, for my wife, a certain time, amount of time allocated for my family. And then the rest was meals and work. And that and and I really haven't deviated from that pie chart. How often do you check in? I was Every say, day. How often do you check in with that pie chart? Every, when I plan my day, my day is planned around my time pie chart. Now the pie chart isn't about. It's not a to do list. It's not a list of bucket list. It's a time list, time management, because that is all we have. Right. So it you will look at that when you're planning your day, and you'll say, I'm only going to allow three. So these workouts. This was three hours worth of your day. De- you, you no, I, my training was separate. So I had, oh, so you could do three hours plus three hours training because you felt, and you would then shift your bucket. Like you, you would reflect that in your in your. Because I think this is a tool. Yeah. People, you know, most of us just drift into our day, right? Right. Don't you think that's a huge separator for you? Right. Like when did you start doing this? You know, it's a, it's fairly recently, only a couple of years ago, and it's been amazingly rewarding for me. I become way more present because in those moments, I'm focused on whatever kind of piece of pie I'm eating. And um, so it's been very rewarding for me. Now, I still have a, a busy day. I still have appointments. I still have, like everybody else, I still have meetings. I have to go to the doctor. I have to take my kids to school. I have to make them breakfast. But I'm able to structure it in a way that I still can fit everything in. Now, one, one thing that SEAL taught me was the whole concept of exercise being cumulative in the sense that he would maximize the day so efficiently that if we were in a meeting and they'd be like, all right, we're taking a 10-minute break to go to the bathroom and check emails, he'd be like, okay, that's fine. Come over here. We're going to go see how many burpees you can do in 10 minutes. Like, right. There were no breaks. It was like, that's a waste of time. You can check your emails in your three-hour little bucket. Jesse. And yeah, and the way you guys write about it, in the, you and the SEAL talk about it, and you write about it in the book, you know, you're in your suit and he's over in a corner and he's all pissed off because you didn't do sit-ups that day. Right. And he throws you down and makes you do sit-ups in your right. like, business outfit right. in the middle of a meeting. And it was a great moment, too, because you then became very human like the rest of us. And you were like, but I'm in a meeting. And he's, he goes, you're on a break. Right. Right. And uh, forced you to do it. But 
now that was where in the pie chart that was what work and exercise. Yeah, the two buckets. That's that's, that's efficiency. <laughs> two buckets that's very efficient. Together. But did it? Does living making yourself this accountable like? Is it something you, even if you didn't do it this way, was it something you always did, Jesse? Because it's really inspiring and interesting way to live to sort of be accountable to yourself, to not only set goals like long-term goals, or, but to actually go, I'm going to control my energy, time, and focus. I think so. I mean, it started out, I never had a resume. So right out of college, when everybody was senior year writing resumes and sending them around, you know, I wanted to be in the music business. I was, I just like, I was like, that is such a waste of time. I'm going to figure out a, a, a different way to get a job or whatever other than try to go on all these interviews and work for someone or whatever. So I always had the mindset of I wanted to take control of my own path as much as, that, as, much as I can. Um, and that, you know, the no resume thing is something that I've been so proud of that I've been able to kind of navigate and go into buckets that I had so much passion for. So um, and, and you were aware of it then. Somehow you were aware then about like living some kind of present focused life. Like it happened to me at 30, not before then. Um, I was just aware that at a young age, you can take a lot, you can afford to take a lot of chances. So I, I knew that I had a short window to really try a lot of different things in my 20s. And I did. You know, I, I was in the airline business. I was in the music business. I was sold vegetables door to door. I mean, I've done all these different things to figure out kind of what, where I really wanted to be and threw a lot of stuff on the, on the ceiling to see what would stick. But um, I knew that that was a good time. I really believe that your 20s is a good time to figure out what it is. No one really knows what they want to do. So few people do. Right. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do, you know, at 47 or what my real purpose is or whatever. But in your 20s, you do have the, the freedom and flexibility to try different things and learn as much as you can and meet as many people as you can. Yeah. And I took, I just, I took, that was a really big theme in my, when I got out of college. What do you mean to figure out your purpose now? Well, I just, you know, like we all struggle. You're a big meditation guy. In fact, you turned me on yeah. to meditation. Um, Are you still doing it? I do not as much as I should, but I got a lot out of it and I still do it in my own way because for me... I get a benefit from running that is incredibly meditative. You just need that. I mean, to me, just that sort of time where you're able to go, you know, uh, to a place, a really present right. place where you come out of it and you reset. So right. For me, it's TM is the thing that worked. Jogging works too, but TM just. It's just a different form of getting the same re- way of getting the same. Yeah, I think results. so too. Because, you know, I don't have any, I don't think there's any religious aspect to, you know, I'm an atheist. I, I don't, I just think that the sort of, uh, the thing that happens to you when you quietly say a mantra and meditation yeah. is similar to the thing that happens, the repetition exactly. when you're running long the distance. The repetition, exactly. I count when I run. I count. What do you mean? I count. If I go, I, if I go for a 10 mile run, I will re- continuously count to a hundred. Front or backwards my, or just? My breath. I'll count my, my breathing. One, as I run, and before you know it, that's how I get through my runs. That's how I do it. Now, with the SEAL, you didn't do music and stuff, but do you do music generally when you run? Never. No. That's a big distraction to me, and, and then I'm not focused on what I'm doing. And No, never. Even when I did my 100 miles, I, I literally, the last 10 miles of the, of the run, I put music on. But just because that was part of my strategy, I probably probably was a bad move. But no, I like to hear and be aware and understand and really know myself. I mean, it's like, it's my time. So it's not Eminem's time to influence me or whoever's, you know, Billy Joel's time to influence me. Although it's great for me, me and everyone has their own thing. I've never just, I've never, I've been running for 25 years. I've never listened to never music. Never music on no. the runs. And do you, and you don't try to solve problems when you're running. Like they may get solved by the time you end your run. 
but you're not consciously using it to think through something. Mm-mm. No, it's my runtime. Because does your pie chart count for, is that a way of also directing your thoughts so that when you, because I think you said this to me, that then when you could be with your family, you force yourself not to be in the business, but to actually be with them. Yeah. And I mean, I, I do all the obvious things. I try not to bring my phone to dinners and I try not to, you know, we have dinner as a family. All the, We do all the things that you would think you have to do to be consistent. And, but I don't, I, during that time, I try not to take calls. I try not to have my phone and, and just make it in all, in all those buckets. Run is run time. My three hours of Jesse time is some of my think time and get organized time or watch TV time. And, and that's how I really do it. And then when, how, when you, do you hold yourself accountable? Do you still, like, a, you had the blog when you were, you and the SEAL. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're calling him the SEAL because at the time he didn't want his name. When are yeah. you guys going to mention his name? Because I know there's lots of Yeah, no, his, in him. his name is David Goggins. And are you yeah. starting, so now yeah. you're starting to, he's allowed you to say his name yes. now and stuff. yes. And so um, you kept a blog during that time, which functioned sort of as a journal for right. you, which is what turned into this book. Yeah. Do you journal on a regular basis? Do you do that for yourself? I'm not consistent with it. I used to, I go in and out of phases where I'll keep a journal and I love doing it, but it's hard to be consistent with it. Just especially now I have three kids and, you know, I would do it at night and now at night, as soon as I, as soon as I pick up a pen, I'm asleep. But, um, but it, it was, I love doing it. During this particular time, I did, you know, when he moved in, I thought, my friends would be really interested in our workout sessions and that maybe they sure. could follow Your along. Your group that would run with you every Wednesday yeah. and all that stuff you thought would want to know. Right. So I literally just sent out a note to about 25, 30 people that you know, had the Navy SEAL moving in with me and I'm going to post my workouts. And then it just, it just caught fire. It just, it just, you know, people were telling me it's, this is so motivating. This is so interesting. And there was so much more to our journey than the workouts. It was like, what makes this guy tick? And what am I getting out of it? And how, what's it like living with him? Sure. Because it's one thing to read about inspiration. It's a different thing to live with inspiration. Sure. And I was living with someone who is just off the charts. Inspiring tri- you by, because he did all the workouts with you. And these workouts are impossible. I mean, you know, it's eight miles in the morning and then, or six miles in the morning and three at night. But sometimes he would reverse it or sometimes he would make you do a, a cool yeah. down run, which was eight miles. You know, and that, it, at yes, night. they were very hard. And then sprints and yes. uh, weight, pa- you know, 50 pound weights on, on you and, and all that stuff. They were brutal. But when, when you think about how this stuff applies outside of the workout realm for you, you know, every, everyone who's real successful has some sort of superpower, whether it's able ability to think through problems or creativity and someone as successful as you probably has a couple of them. But do you think this ability to endure pain and difficulty and to keep going is like uh, something that always set you apart? Well, I always like challenges and sometimes challenges could be painful. And I always like trying to get out of my comfort zone. So, you know, that that's, consciously from post basketball. Yes. You wanted to get out of your comfort zone. Yes. It's more fun. I just found being living outside of the box and out of my comfort zone and trying different things and building the biggest life resume that I could. What does that mean to you, life resume? Just checking the boxes. I want to have as many things checked off. Experiences. Box. Yes. Yes. Experiences. Memories. Creating memories. And the harder the, the harder the challenges, the more memorable they've always been for me. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, Sounds like a no. Well, we've 
don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. When you got to a place where, you know, you guys have, you know, you're billionaires, you can do anything, literally anything that you want. Is it hard for you to come up then with challenge? I mean, is, I, I wonder how someone like you who wants challenge, mm-hmm. who wants difficulty, you know, if you, most people in your position live in a bubble. Well, because they, you yeah. know, the guy kept looking at you. I loved in the book when David would look at you and say, your security's lax here. Or why is this? Yeah. And, and, and you guys looked at them like, nah, man, we're fine. And your wife was the voice of total reason. Like, I just put a fire extinguisher in the rooms. But, right. I mean, how do you grapple with sort of that thing of, well, we've done this now. We're in our 40s. And we never have to do anything we don't want to ever again. Right. Well, I don't think it has anything to do with money. I think um, it just has to do with drive and um, the will and the desire to have these experiences. Now, like... He came into our house, and it doesn't matter. A pull-up bar is a pull-up bar. No matter how much money you have, a marathon is a marathon. And he was just, you know, look, when he moved in with me, I could do 22 push-ups. When he left, I was doing 1,000 a day. He knocked a minute off of my mile pace, and I'm a runner, a 20-year runner, which is insane. So he just taught me that there's so much more in my reserve tank than I thought that I had. And we all have a reserve tank. So, you know... And, and it's opened me up to wanting to learn, well, what else is in my reserve tank? What other interests do I have that I don't know about? What other businesses do I, could I get into? I mean, where you think something's impossible. Because you were saying right. the pull-up bar to you was kind of impossible. 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 But he showed me right there that it was not impossible. It just took time, patience, and a guy like and him. Pain. And pain. I mean, pain. Pain. So how have you applied this to other areas? And then how do you think about it as a dad, too? Like... Do you, how, what kind of do you think about using this stuff? Your outlook on being present and out of your comfort zone. First of all, how do you use it in other areas of your life? And second of all, how does it affect you when you think about being a dad? Well, I'll start with my being a dad. You know, um, I hope that my sons. I have three boys. You know, at an early age, and I'm trying to do it now, but I'm obviously being respectful to their ages, push themselves early on. I think every kid should have to run a marathon before they graduate high school. I really do. I think you can learn. There's so many life lessons in the discipline of training, what you go through, what you have to, you know, endure to finish. I think that it, honestly, by the time you're 18 years old, I think every kid should run a marathon. Now, sure, my boys aren't happy to hear that. They're only six. They don't know what they're in for. But um, so I'm just going to encourage them as much as I can to not be scared to fail, to take risks to push themselves as much as they can, regardless of the of the outcome of being success or failure. And for me personally, in my day-to-day life, um, you know, I, I'm way more present. I'm way more present in what I'm doing. And it sounds so simple, but, and I'm, the biggest challenge for me is, and I'm disciplined, but is being consistently disciplined. The consistency of discipline is so hard. Yes, I can be disciplined if I'm training for a race or you have an event or you have a show that you're doing and you want to say, okay, I got to put in 18-hour days. But when that's done, you'll take a break, you'll take a vacation for two weeks, and then you have to get back in it. The consistency is what's so hard. It's true. It's, that's really true. Right. And, and, and this guy who lived with me is the most consistent 
overtly disciplined guy that I know. So that's something that I try to really do every day in all the buckets of my life is just keep that discipline as best I can. It's hard. I go in and out of it. Do you think most high, high, like really um, incredibly successful self-made people like you are and Sarah have some of these things either hard? Like, do you think that these things are hardwired or are they built? Like, in, in other words, you know, you tell the story in the book that Sarah's told many times of how she, you know, uh, was frustrated she couldn't find this thing that she wanted. She cut the feet off pantyhose. And then you kind of just quickly go, she spent the next two years perfecting right. her thing. You spent a long, you know, you had this idea, and it's great in the book. You talk about when you guys started Marquee Jet, because the music business story is uh, the more typical story. We've all conned our way into an office to get an act signed. Sure. If you succeeded all in that, you've done that. Right. But you guys had like five meetings, you said, where you had to change your pitch and shift it, and then you yeah. brought famous people in to convince the guys at Marquee Jet to, at um, NetJet to take this chance. Do you think that that was something hardwired in you? or in successful people, or you think it's something that they can build? Do you think that somebody out there who's 23 and wondering, like, what, how can they use this stuff to retrain themselves to think really as big as you did and to chase after these things? Well, you know, it's funny. I think it's both. But if I look, look at my wife, my wife grew up listening to Wayne Dyer. If Wayne Dyer wasn't in, if she wasn't listening to Wayne Dyer CDs when she was 16 or 17 years old, she would probably tell you that she wouldn't have been as successful. So she was a little, she was kind of molded a little bit through his thought process. But I think it's both. I think it depends on the individual, you know, and I think that everybody has their own motivator. In the case of this fellow I was living with, he was motivated by anger. And he was just so, he was just, that's what drove him. And some people, it's just all kinds of personal motivations. You really have to find your motivation. It became important to you in the middle of the book. It, it, It was great watching this arc of you at first hoping to develop a personal relationship, right? then kind of knowing maybe I'm not going to, and then then winning him over. Right. How important did, was it to you that he respect you? Uh, and, why, and why, do you think? Well, he gave me 31 days of his life, you know? So he had basically put everything he was doing. I mean, you paid him to do that. Well, here's the thing. He took, he had earned a certain amount of leave. He opted to use his time with us. He could have gone, done whatever he wanted, but he literally came in with us. Um, he never asked me for I mean, money. He was still, at, uh, you don't really say in the book that he was still fully in, because you would say he would go off on these missions, but you made it to make you could have been a contractor then. Right. Was he fully in the military still when he was living with you? As far as I know, he was in the military, yes. But he had time off or whatever. He had l- yeah. leave time or whatever, and he, and he chose to do that with us. So I couldn't let him down. I just couldn't. He had been, th- you know, he'd been through so much in his life. He's an American hero. He's fighting for our free- freedom. And what I'm going to say, I'm not going to jump in the lake. You know, I had to do it. So it was, imp- and that, and it was important to me that he knew that I was giving 110. percent And what did you think it was about when he looked at you and he said, and what did it make you feel like when he looked at you and he was like, "This is all bullshit. It's too comfortable." And he made you sleep in a chair one night. Yeah. And um, because you had asked him to get you in great physical shape, or, or did you ask him to turn? Did you say to him? I want you to turn me into you. Hmm. Is that what you said at the beginning? And it was, no. how did you frame it that he knew I need to put this motherfucker in a wooden, uncomfortable chair for the night because he's too privileged and too comfortable. Right. And I have to break him down. Like, what? I mean, that's some real, like, uh, Hoosiers or one on one, like that old movie. Like, that's some yeah. real old school coach shit. Right. Totally. He, it was twofold. I mean, I wanted to get in great shape. That was certainly a message that I told him right up front. But I also wanted to get off of cruise control. And 
you know, the first night or second night when he had me sleep in a wood chair, he just said, fuck it. I'm going, I'm going to set the tone right now and let you know that this fancy, you know, this apartment stuff and your little, your bed with your nice sheets is done. And and he put me in a wood in chair. In the book, you make it seem like it was later. In the well, he's, he, he slept in a tent. Just to yeah, I mean, the oxygen yeah, deprivation tent. He moved all the furniture out of his room and blew up an oxygen deprivation tank and slept in that. So he had his own, I think he was doing his own challenge. He was living with himself. But yeah, but I, I definitely wanted to mix it up. I mean, there's all kinds of studies that living a more gritty life is a great indicator of future success. The more grit you have, is a, is a great indicator yeah, of success. Yeah, study that grit is the biggest right. uh, difference maker, the ability so, to keep going. So I was like, I just wanted to, anything, I just wanted to get gritty and gritty and gritty. If, like, if a chair, I would just say to myself, this is going to make me grittier, this is going to make me grittier, and I would just just do it. And um, Because you ultimately want to just feel more alive again. Yes. If I have to translate it for myself. Yeah. Is you had started to feel, you say, routine, but what I'm really picking up on is like that feeling of you got everything you'd ever thought you'd wanted. Yep. And you knew you didn't want to just cruise because you say it doesn't have to do with the money, but you're making sure it doesn't. I, you know, because of the life I've lived and the show I'm making, I'm around billionaires all the time now because of the show. I've interviewed, I talked to, you know, people who live that life. And I think most of them settle into it in a way. Right. And even the ones who are put, you know, push themselves. It's still within, you know, you tell the story in the thing of uh, showing up the first day at your apartment and the guy's not want to let you in the elevator because you look right. different. Right. So it seems like it is important to you to not be defined. Whereas most people, it seems, get to the position, all they wanted was to be defined by it. Right. Why do you think you don't want <laughs> That's a great question. I, you know, I don't know. I've always just danced to my own drum. I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's just more fun. It's just more fun. Now, when you were in high school, yeah. did the, were you a good student? Uh, like, did the teachers think, oh, Jesse's going to go be successful? I was good when I decided I wanted to be good for me and not because I wanted to bring good grades home for my parents. So, like, my parents, like, you got to get good grades, get good grades, good grades. I, would, I didn't care. But all of a sudden when I was like, you know what? I want to get good grades because I want to just be in better classes. I want to go to a better school. I started doing well. But no, I mean, I'm a 1,000 on the SAT guy. Really? Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. Right. And But did you think? Middle to, of the pack. And what did you think about yourself then? You know, did you think you were smart enough to do whatever you wanted? A lot of people... I knew I wasn't scared. I knew I wasn't scared to go in and try things. And I knew that I've always been a get my foot in the door and figure it out later guy. Like, I'm going to get my foot in and I don't know where it's going to take me. I can call an audible. I might go left. I might go right. But I always had enough confidence that I could navigate until I found out where that sweet spot was. Look, this book is a journey. I have no idea where it's going to take me. Could it end up being on a, a movie or a script or a brand or a, a you know, well, a you new and David race? Should do sem- you and David could do seminars together, right? Right. I mean, you know, the response has been great to date. People have been saying that this is so motivating. It's so The book is funny. It's fun. And they're saying it's really inspiring and, and it's a quick read. So, you know, that message could could go out there. David's a great speaker. He actually speaks on the Patriot Tour right now with um, the lone survivor, uh, Marcus Luttrell, and American Sniper's wife. And David Goggins are on a, a tour called the Patriot Tour telling their stories of determination and da-da-da. So, yeah, who knows? But my point is, you know, get in, I'm into it, and let's just see where it goes. I mean, there's some momentum, and that's sort of how I've always done it. And when you've had business setbacks, like when, you know, you're, you're – when Marquee, you guys sold it, but also your partnership got rough for a minute there. You guys had a difficult time and you had this whole group of people who kind of 
all thought of the two of you as one unit. Yeah. How did you reset then? Because a lot of us, I think, think uh, when those kind of setbacks happen, we don't really know how to keep moving. Do you take time and kind of think about a plan or do you just keep moving? Like, how do you approach that stuff? Keep moving. I think, you know, like I said, I check the box and move forward. I never look back. I never think about, oh, I've done this race. I've done this business. It's like, I I don't even think, I mean, I'm, I love Marquee Jet. I don't think about it. I don't think about the journey of Zico Coconut Water. And those were big years of 12 of my business years. I mean, long hours. That happened. And what I got from it, I got from it. But now I have to grow and continue to look at other things and build my life resume. I mean, your radar was really great then. You knew ahead of time about yeah. private tr- air travel at the perfect moment. You figured out this coconut water thing early. Yeah. Do you think you still are at, at like in the, your late 40s? Yes. Can you still look at the world and kind of understand what? what's coming do you feel like you still talk to enough regular people or are you know yeah well i'm very aware i love going in stores and looking at what's new on the shelves i love checking out packaging i love listening to what people like that no one else knows about to be early like coconut water um i live with a woman who's incredibly creative i married someone that you know we share a lot of ideas um and i just look at things like what in my life could be better you know so many inventions are made and i'm like why was this made? This didn't really... I, it didn't I took, solve a problem. You're saying I, it didn't solve... There was no problem it that it was worse. supposed to solve. I went into my car the other day and for someone decided on the line that you don't have to put a key in a car anymore. You just have to have some kind of remote thing and push a button. Like, how did that my, make my life... Now I have to find the key. Right. My wife, it's in my wife's thing. My car won't start. I don't know where the key is. I locked the key in the car. It didn't make your life better. No. And I feel like, you know, we're, we're, a lot of things are happening just to happen and they're not making our lives necessarily better. So how do you spend your time now? What are your main business, your business focuses now? Well, I live in Atlanta full time. I'm part of an ownership group that just bought the Atlanta Hawks. So When did um, you do that? Uh, in June of this year, this well, past summer. that's a huge sort of fuck you to the basketball team you didn't end up playing on. I mean, now you've, yeah. you definitely can't, you can go play ball anytime you want with, you know, you can really test yourself against yeah. good competition. Right. It do would, you ever run with the players? Uh, can you? <laughs> I like to watch them. I like to be on a treadmill when they're when they're practicing. No, I mean, have look, you ever run? Have you ever gone out and scrimmaged with them for fun, or you feel like you can't? Um, you know, I, I, no, the answer not with the Hawks, but I played in you know games for fun and silly games like horse and this kind of stuff. But no, and you know, look, we're 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 we won sixty games. We're a professional NBA team. The last thing they want is me to be out there. Like, you know, the first couple of years that Mark Cuban owned the Mavericks, he was still going to Jordan's. I went to Jordan's fantasy camp one year with with Cuban. Cuban oh, was there. Funny. We played ball together. Yeah, he was definitely still playing with them. So uh, at back then, it he would, definitely was shooting with them. But is it has it changed now? Like where it would be somehow frowned upon? Do you think? Uh, you know, I do get in there sometimes early before practice and put some shots up and get workouts in. And if guys show up, would you play two-on-two two with them or you would feel like um, they if, would have to take it easy on you? If or... for some reason, like Paul Millsap twisted his ankle because I'm playing, you know, I'm right, shooting around them. like a jerk. I, they throw me out of Atlanta. So, no. But I get my little workouts in and, and I love it. And I love, I mean, I love our team. I love living in Atlanta. I love our my partner's in the deal. I mean, I just love the whole situation. So the last thing I want to do is mess it up by playing, you know, in a, in a game and something happens. Have they read, do you think the Hawks have read your book? Well, Grant, uh, yeah, a lot of the guys have read it. Kyle Corver sent me an email what the other night. What did he Oh, he loved it. He loved it. He, he's, also, he's a guy that does, once a year he does a thing called the Masogi, where he does something that he doesn't think he could possibly complete. Last, like what? What's an example? He took, I believe, I might be misstating this by a couple of pounds, but he took like a 60-pound boulder, 
and dropped it in six feet of water in the ocean. And he and a friend jumped, took turns diving down and moving the boulder basically a foot or two at a time until they went three miles. It took him 17 hours. So the year before that, I mean, there's all these crazy challenges. So he could really, it really resonated with him. Really resonated well, it with them. Must him. give you a little bit of standing with them from a, because they must know. You, do they know you're an athlete? Do they know you're yeah. an athlete? A lot of the guys know. You know, I've run 100 miles and and done some paddleboard races and all this other stuff. So yeah, it gives a little a little bit of cred for sure. So you love doing this thing where you're an, an owner of the Hawks and an yeah. involved owner of the Hawks. And yep. what else do you spend your time on? And I have three boys, and you know, I have. Um, I'm being very careful about the projects that I choose going forward. I just want to make sure that that they are meaningful. Um, and that I love it because, you know, anything, starting anything new takes so much time and commitment. It's 18 hour days. And so I only want to do something if I'm going to dive into it with 125% and it can fill up my pie chart in a, in a way that won't interfere with other stuff. So for right now, I'm enjoying my book and I'm enjoying the Hawks and I'm enjoying my family. Who's like your ideal reader for this book? Like who do you think needs this book the most? Well, you know, I thought it would be predominantly men. 20 to 40 or, or this and that. It's also, there's a lot of business stories in there. So there's some meaningful life lessons as well. But surprisingly, so many women have enjoyed the book. And it's really for anyone that wants to get out of their comfort zone, is in a little bit of a routine or a rut and needs a little bit of motivation. And we all have a reserve tank. We all want to learn a little bit about what is in our reserve tank in an attempt to get better. So I, I think, I really think the audience is wide on this and that's, that's what I'm, the feedback's been. Well, that's great. Hey man, uh, I really appreciate you coming here and talking to me and uh, I loved reading the book. The, the last thing I have to ask you about is, you know, you talk in the book uh, about the fit for life, eating only fruit until 12. Yes. Now there's been so much science since that questions it. Um, you know, so many different people who yep. write about nutrition, all this stuff. What, obviously it's worked for you. Do you think that it's really um, one of the reasons you are able to do the things you do physically? I mean, how, because describe how you eat. So first of all, 185,000% the reason. There's no question in my mind. You know, studies can prove anything. You can have a study that will say milk is good for you, and then you can have a study that says don't have dairy. It causes mucus and colds and this and that. You can prove anything with money. This book challenged me to a 10-day test. It said only eat fruit until 12 o'clock and... And there's other points, principles of the book. But that's the main takeaway. And I did it. So I tried it for 10 days. And then on day 11, I went back to having a bagel and eggs and everything that I ate. And I felt terrible. I felt great in the 10 days. First couple of days were tough. And then when I went back, I felt terrible. And I haven't gone back since 26 years later. And the main premise of eating fruit until noon, and I, I highly encourage, if you were going to ask me, who would you want to talk to for financial advice? I say, go talk to Warren Buffett. If you wanted to say, well, who would you talk to about health, wellness, nutrition? I would say, go read Fit for Life by Harvey Diamond. And the, the principle is we use more energy for digestion than anything else. You have a big meal, you get tired. Thanksgiving, after your Thanksgiving meal, you probably want to go and take a nap. Food takes a lot of energy to digest. Fruit is the, is the perfect food. It's loaded in nutrients. It's, seven, it's mostly water. Um, the sugar levels are the same sugar in our, that we need in our brain. The sugar spike doesn't, isn't really a factor. Not at all. It's, it's a different kinds of sugar. But I'm not going to get into all that. But it digests in 20 minutes. It, and it's the only food that bypasses, bypasses the stomach and digests in the, in the small intestines and distributes all of its goodness. So by having fruit in the morning, why would you want to have a big meal and use energy, digestion, when you can have fruit and have energy. I would just 
say to people, try it. I, you know, I did it 25 years ago. It's, I haven't missed a day of work. I have off the charts energy and I'm not a good athlete. I'm not even a good runner. And I've run dozens and dozens and dozens of marathons and a hundred miles and da, 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 da. So for me, I, I just, I don't see how, any, how I could argue against it. Are you a vegan otherwise or vegetarian otherwise? I'm a vegetarian. I'm most, you know, I, I'm pretty careful about what I eat. Yeah. But and are your kids are they on the fruit thing in the mornings? Uh, I have two. One and yes. I have, well, no. Yes and no. They were, but as kids get older, it's very hard. And you know, I don't want to take that away from them. They'll make their own. They're decisions. Their own, but they know you do that, and they know that's what you recommend. It's like they what? eat a lot of fruits and vegetables for sure. But and you do it every day. Yeah. So, the, the one rule I do have with my boys is the first thing that they eat should be something that's a living food, not a packaged, processed food. So if my son wakes up and he wants to have a waffle, you can have a waffle, but have a glass of fresh squeezed orange juice first. Have an apple, have a banana, and then have your waffle. But I don't want you to start your day on something that can live on a shelf for five years. How, when you were doing this level of exercise uh, that you talk about in Living with a Seal, uh, you don't talk about what you were eating that much. You'll talk about, oh, I had a couple bananas or uh, you know, I had three veggie burgers. Yeah. How many calories a day were you eating, do you think? I was probably eating around 2,500 to 3,000 calories. And now, you know, I eat, I eat 15 bananas a day. So I eat 1,000 to 1,500 calories of just bananas. You eat yes. so in the every day. In the morning? Now, do you stop eating the fruit at noon or you eat it all day long? Well, I only eat it on, on an empty stomach. So I'll eat fruit only if I've had, th- in between, if I've had three hours of time between I had a solid, after I had a solid food. So if I had a baked potato... I wouldn't have any fruit. Oh right, for the food three combining hours. thing is in fit for life too, right? The, the because way, fruit digests so thing. fast, it takes twenty minutes to really get through your whole body, get the goodness out, and you know, pee or poop it out. Yeah, and you know, other stuff takes three or four hours. So you don't want the fruit to get caught behind your other food that's still digesting; it'll ferment. So you might eat fruit just for longer than till twelve. But, yes. but then if you eat something else, you you hold off. And yeah, if I have dinner later. at six at nine, I'll have some fruit before I go to bed. Ten bananas a day. More. That may be the secret. That may be the secret sauce. That uh, We don't know. Maybe, Jason, you should start eating. Uh, I eat a lot of smoothies. And I use a lot of bananas in my smoothies as a base. But look, you know. that's the You got to do the Living with a Seal recipe book next. Yeah. yeah. For a, real. Not a bad idea. You could say, how quickly could Jesse's agent, how quickly could you sell that thing tomorrow, right? The Living with a Seal recipe book. You living, should totally Living with a Seal meals. That's it. Right. All right. A seal meal. That's great. I'll write the introduction after I try it and lose all this weight. Jesse Itzler, it's a great book. Man, it's, it's great to see you. Congrats on everything. Thank you so much. What's your next big physical challenge? Do you know? Well, yeah, I do. My wife's probably listening to this. Go so, ahead. Uh, but there's a race in the book called Bad Water. You're going to do it? The one you guys go and look at, 125 I, I, degrees. This is a perfect example. I do not want to do it. I just know. I know the pain. I, I've watched it three times. Is David going to do it with you? Uh, he'll do it. He, he'll finish, maybe come back and get me. He'll finish 15 hours before me. But I feel like, you know, I have to do it. I just feel like to be taken seriously in, in, that's a bad thing to say, but. Yeah. Why do you care about, okay. Yeah. Why do you give a shit about what anyone else thinks at this point? I don't. For myself, I just need to do it. I just need to say I've done the toughest foot race in the world. But why? Because what's the thing you still don't know about yourself? I've never done that. I don't know if I can do it, and I just, I don't know. There's something inside of me that says I just need to do it. You're an inspiration, uh, genius, and a little bit crazy. <laughs> That's what I think, ultimately. All right, Jesse, Itzer, thanks, man. Talk to you soon. And uh, hey, you can find Jesse online. You don't tweet that much, but you're on Twitter. At- yeah, at the 
100, the number 100, mile man. And I'm on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Don't send me any screenplays or ideas for movies or business ideas for Sarah or Jesse. We will cut those things up and throw them out. And In fact, what we'll do is we'll send the seal after you if you send those things. But uh, otherwise, any feedback is welcome. Thanks for listening. See you next time.